Welcome to the American Citizens Abroad TaxCast. Today's show is part one of a two-part interview with Caroline Sorolo, partner with Castellanitz and Fink, and former Acting Assistant Attorney General of the U.S. Department of Justice's Tax Division, and Charles Bruce, Legal Counsel of American Citizens Abroad and Chairman of American Citizens Abroad Global Foundation. In today's show, we'll chat about the aspects of the CARES Act that mainly impacts individual taxpayers, things that an expat might find informative and helpful. Part two of our interview will cover things mainly affecting advisors, such as return preparers, accountants, and attorneys. I'd also like to remind our listeners of exactly who we're talking about today. It's estimated that there are about 9 million Americans living abroad. There are no figures on how many Americans abroad are filers and how many are non-compliant. Whatever the number, it's generally acknowledged that there is a significant amount of non-compliance. ACA's sister organization, American Citizens Abroad Global Foundation, contracted with District Economics Group in 2017 to look at baseline numbers which could be used to make rough revenue estimates on revenue-based taxation proposals. These are probably the best private figures. As to the population of advisors, and in particular advisors performing services for U.S. expats, there are a half dozen or more categories of advisors. They include return preparers, accountants, and attorneys. Those professionals practicing before the Internal Revenue Service are subject to clear ethical standards and obligations. Caroline will discuss this in greater detail in part two. So let's get into it. Caroline, Charles, thank you very much for joining TaxCast today. Your knowledge and judgment on all of this is greatly appreciated. Good afternoon, or good morning, depending on when you're listening to this recording. Thank you for having me. Caroline, I've included in the show notes your full bio, along with some links to your presentations and articles. For our listeners, could you tell us more about your time with the U.S. Department of Justice's Tax Division when you were acting Assistant Attorney General? Sure. Let me just start by thanking you for the kind introduction and for the opportunity to speak with you and Charles and your listeners about these important subjects. I joined the Justice Department Tax Division in January 2015 and served as the head of the division until January 17. In my role as Principal Deputy Assistant Attorney General and Acting Assistant Attorney General, I work closely with nearly 500 employees throughout the division, including civil trial and appellate attorneys and prosecutors, to enforce the nation's tax laws fully, fairly, and consistently to promote voluntary compliance and to maintain confidence in our tax system. To that end, we invested substantial time and resources working closely with the IRS in the pursuit of international tax enforcement, which is certainly of interest to our listeners today. As a litigating component, the tax division attorneys are involved in affirmative and defensive civil litigation, as well as involved in criminal investigations and prosecutions based primarily on referrals from the IRS. In fact, the success of U.S. tax enforcement is due in no small part to the close and successful working relationship between the IRS and the Justice Department. Prior to joining the division, I was in private practice for approximately 20 years, and my practice focused on representation of individuals and entities in civil tax controversies and criminal tax investigations um, and defensive prosecutions. That work continued simply on the government side during my tenure at the department and continues today as I returned to private practice in 2017 and have been working with Kostelanitz and Fink with our individual and entity clients. In regards to non-filers and the new CARES Act economic stimulus payments, 
On one hand, most people would like to have up to several thousand dollars in tax-free cash, and the government wants them to have it and to spend it, although the fact that some or all of this money might be spent outside the U.S. has not been raised. On the other hand, there may be some downsides. Will requesting the recovery rebate through the online portal trigger an audit or investigation? No, but on the other hand, by entering information into the online portal, taxpayers are bringing themselves to the attention of the IRS, and any statements made during that process can be used if there were any future civil proceedings or criminal investigations. For example, if anyone hasn't gone onto the portal, the information requested includes the full name, current mailing address and email address of the taxpayer, the date of birth and the social security number, the bank account information, driver's license or state issue ID if they have one, and any of the qualifying child information. So it's important to remember that you are touching the IRS when you reach out and fill out information through this portal. You're essentially filling out a 1040 with the brief information needed so the service can issue these impact payments. It's also important to think about whether you should be using that portal before you go online. First, if you receive Social Security benefits or railroad retirement benefits and you typically are not required to file, you don't need to use the portal. The IRS will issue the economic impact payments directly to you based on the information on the form SSA 1099 or the form RRB 1099. So those individuals do not need to use the portal. The portal is for non-filers who are not required to file if a taxpayer was required to file a return for 2018 or 2019, they should simply file those returns in the ordinary course. Payment, the economic impact payments will be made throughout 2020 and can also be claimed on the 2020 returns in 2021. It's really important whenever you submit information to the IRS that you are completely accurate and truthful. You don't want to be in a situation where you're having to explain whether you made a false statement or a substantial omission in a submission to the service. Not every U.S. person is required to file a U.S. tax return. Someone might earn very little income that is below the filing threshold, or they may rely on Social Security benefits. But if someone is not compliant, if someone hasn't filed tax returns, what are the options? So I know we're going to get into the details of each of these compliance in just a bit. So I'm going to list them here and then we can follow up as we unpeel and unpack them. But the first option, if you're out of compliance, of course, is simply comply going forward. And that means the next time a return is due, you can file a return. We'll talk in a minute about the pros and cons of that approach. That approach certainly does not clean up past compliance in any way, shape or form. Another option is to prepare and file either your delinquent returns or amended returns if you previously filed inaccurate returns. It's important to remember that there's no statutory obligation under U.S. law to, to file an amended return, but oftentimes people consider that option when they're trying to correct past noncompliance and get ahead of what could be an audit or an investigation down the road. A third option, if you have unreported foreign income or you have failed to comply with international reporting obligations would be the streamlined filing submission procedures or the delinquent international information return submission procedures. 
or the FBAR submission procedures, if we're talking about our annual foreign bank account reports under Title 31 of the U.S. Code. Those are all in the international arena. And then finally, in the event that there is a risk of criminal investigation or prosecution, taxpayers should consider the formal voluntary disclosure, which has been in the Internal Revenue Manual, which is the guidebook for IRS employees for decades. It came into our normal conversation in 2009 with the announcement of the first offshore voluntary disclosure program. So many people refer to this as the OVDP or the OVDI, Offshore Voluntary Disclosure Initiative. However, the formal voluntary disclosure practice predated that by 40 to 50 years, and it continues today in a different format. So we'll unpack each one of those as compliance options. Carolyn, let me just make a tiny, tiny point to illustrate something. This is for people who want to benefit from the foreign earned income exclusion. To benefit from that exclusion, someone has to follow the rules. They have to make a special election, and that election must be filed either with the income tax return or an amended return for the first taxable year for which the election is to be effective. What you can't do is just run your numbers, see that you are below the need to file threshold requiring you to file a return and sit back and do nothing. If you have not filed your tax returns and years later decide you want to catch up, you might be foreclosed from getting that exclusion. It's a wrinkle, but I use it to illustrate the idea of just letting time pass may not always be the best approach because some of your avenues may be foreclosed. That's absolutely correct. And there are other areas of the internal revenue laws where timing is important in terms of invoking elections, specifically with international entities. And so Charles raises a really good point. If someone has not filed returns and wants to catch up, what are the pros and cons of simply filing past due returns and hoping that that's that? The benefit of simply filing delinquent returns or amended returns is reduced cost because at that point you're not generally engaging counsel attorneys for a full-blown compliance path. Generally, you're just simply preparing returns with an accountant or preparing amended returns and filing them. While you are making admissions on those returns in terms of your income and your expenses and other information that's reflected on the return, you are not generally attaching a very detailed narrative that reviews your non-compliance. So the admissions that you're making are generally quite limited if you're simply filing the returns. In addition, the Internal Revenue Manual does have a policy statement that says if you are out of compliance and you are coming into compliance through this path, which is perfectly appropriate, the general look back period is approximately six years. So if you've been out of compliance for 10 years or 15 or even 20 or 30 years, the IRS expects you to go back six years. There is a downside to this approach though. First and foremost, once the returns are processed, there will be automatic penalties assessed. They're called delinquency penalties and the failure to file penalty equals 25% of the tax due. That accrues at a rate of 5% per month and maxes out within the first five months from the due date of the return. So as a general rule, people coming in and filing back years are already at the maximum of their failure to file penalty. 
in addition, that could go up to 75% of the tax if the IRS were to then select the case for audit or investigation and determine that there was willful failure to file. That goes up to 75% delinquency or civil fraud, fraudulent failure to file penalty. In addition, there are delinquency penalties for failure to pay, which go up to 25% of the balance due. And there is a bit of an offset, a 2.5% offset against the failure to file penalty if both of the delinquency penalties are applied. But essentially, you could be looking at a 47.5% delinquency penalty on the liabilities. There are other paths that could avoid those penalties, but those will be automatically assessed simply in terms of processing the return. In addition, you may face estimated tax penalties if you fail to make deposits during the year. Now, all of these penalties depend on or presume that there were no payments during the tax years. If someone was making payments, and I've seen this happen where someone will make payments, but they simply won't file returns, then they will face the failure to file penalty, but the failure to pay penalty would be mitigated as a result of the prior penalties. So that's a risk. In addition, there's no closing agreement that comes with this. You're simply filing the returns and are subject, like any other taxpayer, to civil examination, criminal investigation, or criminal prosecution. And there's no way to foreclose the prior period. So if you haven't filed for 10 years and you filed the last six years and you're audited, the IRS could go back and say, we decided we're going to open up those prior years. Under Section 6501 of the Internal Revenue Code, the statute of limitations on assessment does not begin to run until you file a return. And if you file a return and there are international forms omitted, that statute can stay open until the return is amended with those forms. We're going to talk a little bit about that in a bit. But And there are other ways to extend the statute from the general three-year time from the due date of the return to assess additional tax to six years or unlimited if there's fraud. And so... While it is certainly a path to follow for many people, particularly those that did not engage in willful, potentially criminal conduct, there is a risk there and there is a cost there that you need to know going in. The voluntary disclosure rules have gone through several iterations in recent years. Caroline, can you give us a quick rundown of the history? Where are we now with the streamlined filing compliance procedures, the eligibility and the scope as it pertains to U.S. taxpayers living abroad? Sure. So the streamlined filing compliance procedures came into play in 2014, and they were designed for taxpayers who were out of compliance, but their lack of compliance was non-willful. And that's a term of art. It's a term, it's not specifically defined in the Internal Revenue Code or the accompanying regulations, but it's been defined by case law. If you had asked me what willful conduct was 10 years ago, I might have said a intentional violation of a known legal duty, intentional conduct. Today, based on the case law that has developed around the penalties imposed for failing to file annual foreign bank account reports, we call them FBARs, willfulness has expanded quite a bit. And the concern is the IRS has become very aggressive in terms of asserting international-based penalties, both under the Internal Revenue Code and under Title 31 for the FBARs. What is and is not willful is sometimes in the eye of the beholder, but I think taxpayers need to understand that if they were aware they had a filing requirement and they chose not to file, the IRS will view that as willful. They really view non-willful conduct as a mistake. 
like I didn't know I had to file. I, you know, I consulted with an advisor. They told me I didn't have a filing obligation and therefore I didn't file. Or I didn't realize that this was a reportable event or that this was taxable income. It really has to be truly non-willful conduct. I hate to use the term as part of the definition, but you have to look at it carefully. So under the streamlined filing compliance procedures, the general approach is that taxpayers must complete and sign the streamlined filing compliance forms. Okay, and these forms are very detailed. You have to provide all of the information regarding the taxpayer. In addition, you have to include a very detailed narrative that outlines the willful and non-willful conduct and the nature of the non-compliance and the advisors that assisted you along the way. They really want a full-throated explanation of why you're coming into Streamline and why you're out of compliance in the first place. In addition, the IRS will require taxpayers to file U.S. tax returns for the last three years for which the filing deadline has passed. So if you're sitting here today with an extended filing deadline on your 2019 return of July 15th, and I said, well, how many years back do I have to file? It would be filing 2018, 17, and 16 would be the three years of tax returns because the 19 tax return filing date hasn't passed yet. So it's three years of tax returns. It's six years of foreign bank account reports or FBARs. The taxpayers are required to pay all the tax and the interest accrued on the returns that are filed. And they're also required if they live in the U.S., and I know you asked about people outside the U.S., but for context, in the U.S., um, they're required to pay a civil penalty equal to 5% of the highest aggregate balance over the six-year period where the taxpayer's foreign financial assets were not reported based on the year-end balances. So that's for taxpayers in the U.S. It's a very similar approach for taxpayers that qualify as outside the U.S., and that's a test. It's not just I happen to be in the U.S. at the moment I'm submitting this. There's a test that you have to go through to determine do you qualify as a U.S. filer or a non-U.S. filer. But if you are outside the U.S., then you don't pay any civil penalty. You just file your three years of tax returns, your six years of FBARs, you pay the tax and interest due, and then you're done. Now, what's important to remember about this is that this is a filing procedure. It's not a program. There's no closing agreement at the end of this. However, the IRS has said that if people come forward and they are eligible for this, and I'll get into eligibility in a minute, and they complete it and it's accurate and they're truthful and they pay what they're obligated to pay, then the IRS will not go beyond this look back period, the three years for the tax returns and the six years for the FBAR if the taxpayer is audited. There's no guarantee that streamlined taxpayers will be audited, but they can be audited. There can be adjustments to those returns. But if there's an error on the return, as long as the tax, the IRS doesn't believe that it was a willful error, then they're not going to withdraw the benefits of the streamlined program. So there's a couple things here. If you don't qualify for being outside the U.S. because you were living outside, but you moved back to the U.S. and now you've been here long enough to trigger the U.S. filing, if you are a non-filer, you will not qualify. People that are determined to be U.S. or domestic streamlined filers must have filed returns. Only non-filers that qualify as the foreign streamlined filers qualify for that. In addition, you're not eligible for streamlined if the IRS is already aware of you and your specific non-compliance. So if a taxpayer is under audit, 
or under criminal investigation, for whatever reason, they would not be eligible for the streamlined filing. And when I say criminal investigation, I mean criminal tax investigation related to this issue of noncompliance. But it can be any type of civil tax audit, any federal civil tax audit. If you're under a state audit, that's fine. You could still come in under the streamlined program. And so it's important that you determine your eligibility, I believe, before you apply for the streamline. Because if you are already under audit, you can't jump into streamline. If you've already participated or started the offshore voluntary disclosure program, and maybe you're still in that, and now you're learning about this streamline that sounds like such a better deal, you can't jump from offshore voluntary disclosure program to this. There are still OBDPs that are open since the program closed. And if you're in a formal voluntary disclosure practice, and you come into that since say November of 18 or September of 18 when OBDP ended, you can't then flip into streamlined. You have to be careful about the eligibility. Carolyn, let me ask a couple of things. With this procedure, and you've done everything, and you've paid at the same time you made your filing, when do you know that it's finished? There's no closing uh, agreement, I gather. When can you sit back and say, I think I'm done with this? That's a great question. Generally, the IRS says they will not be sending you anything. They're going to process these returns just like they process other returns. And so there's no thank you for playing letter that you get. Although in my practice, I have seen letters come out to clients saying we've accepted your returns and process them and we're done. It's just that the IRS doesn't guarantee to send those. The other thing is that once the returns are filed through the streamlined, these again are filing procedures. So the statute of limitations will start to run. If the returns are accurately filed and there's no fraud on those returns or substantial omission, then eventually the statute of limitations on adjusting those returns will expire. But it is really important to remember that if you submit through the streamlined and you make a willful false statement or you substantially omit information that is relevant and it's considered a sin of omission, the IRS can take a look at that and decide that's not a valid streamline and in fact rises to the level of criminal conduct and refer it for criminal investigation and prosecution. In fact, on August 27, 2019, a federal grand jury in Florida returned a superseding indictment charging Brian Booker, a former resident of Fort Lauderdale, with failing to file FBARs, filing false tax returns, and filing a submission under the streamlined filing procedures, falsely claiming that his failure to report all the income and pay the tax and submit the tax returns and the reports, such as FBARs, was due to non-willful conduct. They found that to be a false statement. So that case is still pending. It remains to be seen how it's resolved. I'm sure Mr. Booker will push back with his counsel, but it's a good lesson to people to take this very seriously. Thank you for that. Let me say, it seems that in the voluntary disclosure setting, a, a, a number of things can be uh, understating it now, particular situations. I think in some of the articles that you've written or co-written, there's an expression, it's a so-called eggshell cases. I suspect that there are many situations where particular problems have been dealt with. For example, there's the question of what you can do if you suspect that the IRS knows about your noncompliance already, and so you're not really disclosing anything. They already know about you. And I'm wondering about how that can arise in this uh, particular setting. One particular factual setting I'm thinking about is if your bank 
let's say a, a Swiss bank, went through the Justice Department enforcement program, with which you are highly familiar. If your bank mm -hmm. went through that procedure and your name was probably or should have been disclosed, does that somehow foreclose you from being voluntary and going into the streamlined procedure? So let me start with the eggshell reference, just okay. for the listeners that might not be familiar with this. An eggshell audit is an audit in which a taxpayer and or their advisors are aware of non-compliance, but it is believed that that information has not come to the attention of the revenue agent who is handling the audit. And therefore, and this is where the term comes from, you as the client and the advisor are walking on eggshells, trying to avoid cracking the shells. And by cracking the shells, we mean revealing those areas of weakness to the IRS. You're trying to get through the audit and get to what we call a statutory notice of deficiency. It's a letter that outlines the adjustments that the auditor has found, the revenue agent has found, and generally signifies the close of the audit without having a referral of the case from the civil revenue agent, the auditor, to the IRS Criminal Investigation Division for criminal investigation and potential prosecution by the Department of Justice. So that is what an eggshell audit is. And when you are in an eggshell audit as an advisor, you have to be very careful because your client is required to cooperate. And as an advisor, we are subject to rules that we'll get into in part two a little bit further, but under Circular 230, that we cannot unduly delay any proceeding at the IRS. That would be a violation of our ethical obligations. But you have to protect your client and you have to protect privileges. And so it's a very careful path to get from point A to point B and protect your client. And sometimes the client may agree to adjustments that they would otherwise want to fight, but they prioritize their freedom over the actual bill at the end of the day. And they say, I will agree to this to end the audit. So that's an eggshell audit. In terms of the question about the eligibility of the Streamline program, if you are under audit, you are not eligible for the Streamline filing program, period. You are not eligible. If you are not under audit, but it comes to your attention that your foreign financial institution has received either a treaty request for information regarding U.S. account holders, or there's a John Doe summons that was issued, which is a summons issued by authorization of a U.S. district court in the United States, allowing the IRS to obtain information about a group of otherwise unidentified taxpayers where they are aware that there is an area of non-compliance, similar to if for those of you comfortable with digital currency, the Coinbase case where a summons was issued to Coinbase for information in the exchanger's database where the IRS didn't have particular taxpayer names. They just knew that a lot of holders of digital currency were not reporting that on their tax returns. But the issuance of a John Doe summons to gather information is not what we would call a triggering event that would prevent you from coming into a streamlined uh, filing procedure or a voluntary disclosure. It's when the IRS gets specific information regarding the specific taxpayer that they become ineligible for these compliance programs. If the IRS is conducting a civil examination of the taxpayer's returns, they are not eligible. 
if information comes to light specifically with respect to that taxpayer, they would not be eligible. They would be put on what we would call the deconfliction list. But the only way to find out if someone's eligible, because I'm sure someone listening to this would say, well, how do I know if they have my information? All I know, I know if I'm under audit, but I understand that before I'm contacted for an audit as a taxpayer, there's a lot of activity that goes on inside the IRS, like my file is identified and a revenue agent is assigned and there's internal review going on. By the time I get a letter, I've already been in the hopper for a while. Well, one way to do that is by requesting preclearance in the voluntary disclosure program where the IRS will check all of its databases and they do not disclose which databases they're checking. That is internal information and probably properly so, but they check. And if they don't have any record of a taxpayer, then they will respond and say, you are now cleared. Cleared for takeoff really is how I've always looked at it. And then the taxpayer can decide, do I need to do a voluntary disclosure or should I pick a different path? Now, some taxpayers, it's clear that they're not subject to a triggering event. There's been no audit. Some of these non-filers, they've never heard from the IRS. The likelihood that they would come to the surface to the IRS's attention in the specific way required for a triggering event is slim to none. And so people are just filing streamlined and it's fine. You don't always have to do a pre-clearance request before you pursue a streamline. And in fact, because streamlined filing is really for non-willful taxpayers, taxpayers should not be as concerned about preclearance, right? Because a triggering event would not be a problem. They're coming in, they're filing. If any penalties are proposed, they either are coming in through a a process that will limit those penalties or they will argue defenses to the penalties. So there's less of a need for a preclearance. That gets a little bit deep in the weeds, but I hope that answers the question. Answers my questions. Back to you, Caroline. Circling back though, Charles, you had asked about the Swiss banks that participated in the Swiss bank program or any foreign financial institution. And I just want to stress that just because a foreign financial institution is working with the Department of Justice, either under the Swiss bank program or some other avenue or program, doesn't mean that a taxpayer is absolutely ineligible. It could mean that information has been turned over and is sitting somewhere in some office and it just hasn't been processed yet that taxpayer would still be eligible because even though the information has been turned over, it hasn't been processed, it hasn't been noted. When I was working at the Department of Justice and we were managing the Swiss bank program between 2015 and 2017, a tremendous amount of data came into the Swiss bank regarding U.S. account holders. Not every one of those account holders was eliminated from a voluntary disclosure or a streamlined filing. And in fact, you know that because in the FAQs, frequently asked questions and answers that were set forth in the OBDP, the Offshore Voluntary Disclosure Program, it would talk about how if you had an account at one of these banks, that your offshore penalty, your miscellaneous penalty would increase. It would increase, but it didn't say you're not eligible. So it recognized, the IRS recognizes that people can be among the data that's being produced by these banks and yet still be eligible for a voluntary disclosure. And they wanted to stress that because they did not want people thinking, I had an account at a corner bank in Switzerland and therefore there's no way I'm eligible. You may be, if you are at risk for criminal investigation or prosecution, you should consider a pre-clearance request and see, because you may be pleasantly surprised to find out that you are eligible. 
Finally, I just want to note that in terms of streamlined filing, the IRS has done an amazing job getting guidance out in this area. The IRS website is available. It provides detailed information regarding both the streamlined filing programs and the voluntary disclosures. It talks you through the domestic version of streamlined versus the foreign version. And there's a webinar, and my understanding is we'll make that available to the listeners after this program that was presented on May 11th of 2018 that really step-by-step goes through the streamlined process. That's all great. Thank you very much for that additional insight. While I'm thinking of it, let me ask a short question, and that is, is it possible to say anything about how long streamlined will go on? All I can say is that the IRS has made it clear that it will not go on forever. That program may end at any point. I think history has proven that if the IRS is going to end a program, they will give fair notice. They advise taxpayers that offshore voluntary disclosure program, OVDP, was closing in March of 2018, and it closed in September of 2018. So, A number of complicated questions arise with the delinquent international information return submissions procedures as a subcategory of voluntary disclosure. Could you tell us about the procedure's eligibility and scope? Sure. So while this is a compliance path, I would not call it a subcategory of voluntary disclosure, although I know that is frequently how it's referred to. And the reason why I point that out is because this is designed for taxpayers who do not need to do a formal voluntary disclosure or come into compliance through the streamlined filing procedures because they're not required to report additional income and pay additional tax. This program is for taxpayers who have not filed one or more of required international information returns. And when we refer to those forms, we're talking about forms for foreign trusts, such as forms 3520 or 3520A, uh, controlled foreign corporations, forms 5471, the statement of specified foreign financial assets, the forms 8938, these types of international-based forms. If a taxpayer has not filed those, under the Internal Revenue Code, the statute of limitations on assessing tax may not have started to run. Back starting in 2010, the code was revised to say that the limitations would be open for the entire return if these forms are not included. So oftentimes people say, I don't owe any more tax and I reported my income, but I'm I'm sitting out here and could be audited at any point because I forgot to include it in 8938. And so this is the submission procedure to solve that problem. But you have to have reasonable cause, and reasonable cause is a higher threshold than non-willful. Reasonable cause is the good faith effort to comply with the tax laws. You've done everything you possibly can, and you still weren't able to get it right, basically. So what it boils down to is, did you oftentimes... Did you rely on a professional? That's oftentimes the type of reasonable cause that people had. Or did you have a medical issue that prevented you from complying with your obligations? If you can say, I had reasonable cause for failing to to meet these requirements, then you write up a statement, you attach it to the amended returns with these forms, and you submit them in accordance with the submission procedures. You have to comply with these submission procedures because if you don't, The IRS will process these as simply amended returns or delinquent returns and assess international penalties at the processing level that can be significant. 
Now, I should warn you that it is well known that there is a systemic problem with this program. People comply with all the rules and they file the amended returns with these forms. You can't just file the forms alone. You can't just send in a form 8938 or send in a form 5471. It has to be part of an amended return. 3520s are different. They are filed separately. They're always filed separately. If people comply with these rules, oftentimes they are still assessed with penalties. And the advisors and the taxpayers, it's very frustrating on their end. And then they have to challenge it. Eventually it gets worked out, but not until after months and maybe even up to a year of challenging this and trying to explain why these penalties are not appropriate. Just in terms of client management for our advisors listening into this podcast, you need to advise the client that this is a risk simply so they're not frustrated with you when this happens, as opposed to being just frustrated with the system. If you complete these procedures, no penalties should be applied. For people who cannot bring themselves within the streamlined provisions, what should they do? Are they left with formal voluntary disclosure? Let's assume they cannot bring themselves into the streamline because either they engage in willful conduct and they are not eligible, or they don't meet the foreign filing requirements and they are a non-filer. So they're back in the U.S., they've triggered the U.S. status, the domestic status, and they're a non-filer and so they're they're not eligible. Then the options come down to compliance going forward, which we talked about, that brings them into compliance, but it doesn't clean up any of the past years. And those years remain open. And if they are selected for audit, there's no statute of limitations. It could be 10 years down the road and they could get audited for, you know, 2014. They could comply going forward. They could simply file amended returns or delinquent returns. And we talked about the risk of that and the automatic assessment and penalties, the lack of finality, the lack of a, there's a six year look back under the IRM, but it doesn't clean up the prior years. There's no closing agreement. Or the third option is a formal voluntary disclosure. I'll talk about that in a minute, but some advisors or clients will say, well, there's a fourth option. I can just continue staying out of compliance. That's not an an option for the advisors listening in today. Uh, We have obligations. We have ethical obligations. We're going to talk more about that in part two. But you cannot represent a client that continues to engage in violations of the Internal Revenue Code and think that that's okay. It's a violation of Circular 230. It would be clients committing crimes under your watch. And it's simply not something you should do under any circumstance. I look at this as three options, comply going forward, amend inaccurate returns in the past or file delinquent returns in the past or a formal voluntary disclosure. The voluntary disclosure practice that we talked about at the outset of the webcast has been in place for decades. I wanna say 50 or 60 years. It's in the Internal Revenue Manual in part nine and it is a method by which taxpayers can come into compliance with the hope of avoiding criminal investigation and prosecution. Now, the IRS has been very clear over the many years that a voluntary disclosure does not guarantee immunity. However, because of the process for the development of a criminal tax case in the United States, is such that the IRS is the only federal agency authorized to investigate tax crimes, and then they refer matters over to the Department of Justice who can initiate grand jury investigations based on that referral. 
if the IRS says, if you come in and you do A, B, and C and X, Y, and Z, we will not refer this over to the Department of Justice for a grand jury investigation or for authorization of prosecution, then the likelihood of a criminal tax prosecution is slim. And in fact, the IRS has been very careful over the years because they are encouraging people to come into voluntary compliance, not to do a bait and switch, to lure people in and then surprise with a gotcha criminal investigation. So it is in everyone's best interest, including the federal governments, to encourage people to come into voluntary disclosures and stand by that avoidance of criminal investigation, but only if a taxpayer cooperates, they're complete, they're accurate, they're timely, and they they produce all of the information and make good faith payment arrangements to resolve their tax liabilities, and then they sin no more going forward. So it, it's a contractual relationship. It's a mutually beneficial relationship because the IRS doesn't have the resources to audit everyone who files. We have over 150 million returns filed in our country every year, and so this benefits both sides. The practice that's been in place for decades was revised in November of 2018 after the conclusion of the Offshore Voluntary Disclosure Program in September of 2018 and significantly revised. The IRS took all of the data and feedback that they had learned over the last nine years, nine and a half years, during which we had one form or another of an Offshore Voluntary Disclosure Program and invested that into updated guidance. And there's a written memo out there issued in November of 18, and it talks about the procedure here. Generally, it involves coming in. First, you do a preclearance process. Then if you're cleared, you provide all sorts of data, including detailed information about your non-compliance, your advisors, your entities, your related ownership, your foreign financial accounts, your domestic financial accounts that are subject to non-compliance all sorts of information, and I'm going to streamline this, but it's all part of a form 14457. And then once that is processed, IRS, criminal investigation, will give you preliminary approval to proceed, and they transfer it over to audit. You will then be assigned a revenue agent. You will go through a standard audit, which will be a very thorough standard audit, and at the end of the day, you will get a closing agreement under which you will pay all of your tax and interest due and certain penalties that are part of a framework. But the difference between this voluntary disclosure process and the offshore voluntary disclosure program is that there's no guaranteed list of penalties that can be opposed. There is an advisory list. There is a list that we anticipate will be applied in you know, 90% of the cases but there is discretion built in to this program. One, to give the IRS discretion in cases that warrant the authority to impose additional penalties. For example, if the taxpayer comes in and doesn't cooperate or the opportunity for the taxpayer to come in and challenge one or more of the penalties that are contemplated under the program. The big takeaway from this is one, if you're going to consider a voluntary disclosure, engage an advisor that is comfortable in this space, not someone who just decided to hang a shingle and say, I can do this because I did OVDP disclosures for the last few years. You need somebody who really understands not only the voluntary disclosure context, 
but the standard audit process and procedures. They were not imposed in the OBDP, and you will be engaged in an audit as a taxpayer. There's a lot of guidance, uh, and there's going to be some new guidance that is going to be the subject of a lot of conversation in the coming months. And so I would say to your listeners, stay tuned because there will be information coming out about the voluntary disclosure practice in the very near future. It's definitely an avenue for those who believe that they have committed tax or tax-related crimes. And in fact, the IRS has said very clearly, this practice is for those individuals that have true exposure for criminal investigation and prosecution. Without that exposure, the IRS is saying, use the other avenues. And so if you have a purely domestic issue, even if you live overseas, but all of your accounts are in the U.S. and your non-compliance is in the U.S., you can do a voluntary disclosure if you fall into that category. But if not, you can simply file your returns. And the IRS is not saying that that is a bad thing. It's just you need to understand the nuances of each path. And you need to have an advisor that will walk you through your particular facts and circumstances and give you the best advice they can give you based on the available options. We've covered quite a bit. Is there anything else that you think we should touch on? I think in this context for the listeners, I would just remind them that the foreign bank account reports, the annual reports that are due, we call them the FBARs, are under a separate title. They're Title 31. They are not tax forms. They are forms that have been required since 1970 under the Bank Secrecy Act. The purpose of those forms is along the lines of the Bank Secrecy Act, which is to prevent money laundering and other types of financial crimes. There are courts in the U.S., at least two, that have described them as tax forms. I would object to that. In fact, I'm on record saying that is incorrect. These forms are designed to encourage people to disclose their foreign holdings because the government was aware in 1970 and prior that people were hiding income and assets offshore and not disclosing that and that those income and assets were being used in illicit activity. So it's really important to understand the FBAR filing requirements. The people that are required to file FBARs are all U.S. persons, which would include a U.S. citizen, a U.S. resident that meets the certain definition under the Internal Revenue Code and the regulations, or an entity that is created under the laws of the U.S. or or D.C. or the territories or the insular possessions. Those are your filers, and the obligation arises if you are one of those filers and you have foreign financial accounts at any point during the calendar year where the aggregate balance of those accounts exceeds $10,000, and that's $10,000 U.S. And so it's really important to understand this because there are draconian penalties that can be opposed, both non-willful penalties and willful penalties, if these forms are not filed. There's no tax due with these forms. These are strictly disclosure forms, but there's both civil and criminal sanctions for not filing these forms, particularly for, of course, for willful not filing on the criminal side. And the penalties can range from $10,000 per, according to the government account or per private practitioners, the form, there is a debate in the courts right now about whether the non-willful penalty of up to $10,000 is per account per form. But on the willful side of the spectrum, it's pretty clear that the penalties can be up to 
50% of the value of the account with a minimum willful penalty of $100,000. And there's a six-year statute of limitations, whether you file these forms or not. There's a six-year statute of limitations to impose these forms. Now, the IRS has guidance in the Internal Revenue Manual that tempers the application of these penalties. These are not tax penalties and they're not tax forms, but under the Bank Secrecy Act, the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network delegated to the IRS the right to examine these types of issues and to assess the penalties. The collection happens outside of the IRS, but they have the authority to impose them. And these are oftentimes what drives people in to compliance because these penalties can be so severe. The largest FR penalty to date that I'm aware of is $100 million. And it was imposed on a professor out of Rochester who failed to report foreign accounts and was prosecuted. And he agreed to a $100 million FR penalty in the plea agreement. But it is not unusual to see litigation involving FR penalties well in excess of a million dollars, even where the tax at issue, the tax loss on these accounts is minimal. So I leave the listeners with that, <laughs> that positive note of compliance and just remind people that when you're looking at a compliance issue, you have to look at the whole board. You need to make sure that you have an advisor that really understands this area. And there's a lot of them out there. And that if you're getting U.S. tax advice, make sure it's from someone who is comfortable with U.S. tax advice and not someone who is, is a foreign tax advisor that just happens to look online. Thank you again, Caroline. That was quite a tour de force. Please join us for part two, dropping on Sunday, May 31st, when we chat about advisors handling eggshell cases and related subjects. The American Citizens Abroad Taxcast is edited and produced by me, Michelle, and is a product of American Citizens Abroad. It is published on the 15th and at the end of each month. You can get in touch with us at podcast at americansabroad.org. Remember to give us a good rating on Apple Podcasts so other Americans living abroad can find us.